uh, welcome uh, to uh, this month's Pride program, the Religious and Political Agenda Against Trans Lives, Alternative Faith Perspectives. Uh, my name is Stephen Slabaugh and I serve as the co-director of Interfaith Action uh, here in Southwest Michigan. And we are just really and truly delighted that you've all joined us for this important conversation. As you all know, uh, in recent times, uh, religious groups have aligned with political entities to oppose trans-affirming practices in various spheres, ranging from public library resources to trans-supportive health practices. And as local and national debates on these issues intensify, it's crucial to explore alternative voices within faith communities that advocate for trans-affirming practices. This evening, we'll have the opportunity to hear from representatives from Christian, Jewish, and Muslim backgrounds on this topic. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation. So um, uh, before we get started, I want to extend our gratitude to our co-sponsors of this event, the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan, the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan, and the Episcopal Diocese of Eastern and Western Michigan. So a lot of Episcopalians, so thank you for, for your support of this event. Uh, and I also want to say a word of welcome to our facilitator this evening, the Reverend Dr. Sid Moan, uh, who is the founder and emeritus director of Interfaith Action. Uh, he is also our acting coordinator of Interfaith Relations and Public Theology. So uh, we're so thrilled uh, Sid is still on with us at Interfaith Action. For those of you who don't know, uh, Reverend Moan was ordained as a clergy person within the United Church of Christ in 1976, the first openly gay person ordained in the Illinois Conference of the United Church of Christ, and the second openly gay person ordained nationally in UCC. Reverend Moan has been active in advancing the leadership of LGBTQ individuals within the local, regional, national, and international communities and institutions of faith. So no better person to lead this conversation. So Sid, I'll turn it over to you to uh, introduce our panelists and lead the discussion. Okay. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, indeed, this is uh, regrettably a very timely conversation. The trans legislation tracker uh, currently indicates that it is following uh, 550 anti-trans gender bills in 49 states uh, throughout the United States. Um, Self-defined Christian pastor Jason Graber recently called for the execution of all LGBTQ people as well as the parents of transgender people. With this quote, they just need to be shot in the back of the head and then we can string them up above a bridge. The Catholic uh, Bishop of San Francisco, uh, Bishop Cordelioni, has called trans people a threat to the church. Uh, these statements are all evidentiary of an alignment uh, between right-leaning religious groups with political parties. And as Stephen said, this includes right-leaning religious voices uh, from Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions. And the alignment is very evident uh, here in the United States, but also in Russia, Hungary, Israel, Turkey, Uganda, just to name a few of the, the current 
hotspots of anti-LGBT and trans efforts. In reflecting today at the beginning of Pride Month, uh, it was in 1969 in the Stonewall riots, which protested police raids on LGBTQ people. Those riots were led by trans people who were on the front lines of the attacks. Uh, 50 years later, uh, trans people are still on those front lines. So let's get started uh, with uh, our conversation this evening. I'll do a brief introduction of our four uh, guests. Uh, first, we have Dr. James Whitehead, uh, who received his PhD from Harvard. Uh, Jim has focused his work as a theologian on the interplay between religion and culture. He, along with his wife, Evelyn, a developmental psychologist, were seminal Catholic thinkers of affirming sexuality and embodiment and paving the way for a groundbreaking spiritual views on gender, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. Their book, Fruitful Embraces, one of 15 books they have written is evident of their work in this area of human sexuality and culture. Another one of their books, Holy Arrows, Pathways to a Passionate God, won an award from the US Catholic Press Association. Uh, Megan Buell is founder and board president of a not-for-profit organization called TREE, which stands for Transgender Resource Education and Enrichment Services. It is a, a pioneering not-for-profit in the US, which focuses its work on providing uh, trans resources in rural communities. Megan's first book, which uh, has been co-authored with Jim, was published in late April, is entitled The Road to Me, A Transgender Journey, and it is available through Amazon. Rabbi Simone Schicker is the rabbi of Temple B'nai Israel in Kalamazoo. Uh, she studied at the Hebrew Union College, uh, both in Jerusalem and in Cincinnati, and at its Institute of Religion. While there, she was president of the Rabbinic Student Association and instrumental both in forming and serving as a leader of the Student Gender Task Force. Maher Al-Hajj is a Palestinian Muslim born in Jordan after his family was displaced from their home in Palestine. The family later moved to Michigan and he studied in the Dearborn area. Maher received his Masters of Divinity from the University of Chicago Divinity School. And his thesis was on Islam, the West and queer politics. Maher has founded an initiative halal this way towards a visible queering in Sunni Islam. Uh, the project is anchored by a book of the same name. So let's get started. Uh, Jim, uh, you've been a 
a pioneering Catholic theologian over many decades, uh, affirming perspectives on gender and sexuality. Over the past decade, you've turned attention to issues of trans identity. So two questions for you. What motivated you to that focus as a Christian? What led you to your current uh, interest in and writing on uh, trans rights? And secondly, what, what counter message, if any, do you have to Christian voices that seek to restrict rights and inclusion of trans people? Thank you, Sid. In 1970, Evelyn and I got married and began our joint ministry of teaching together, relying on her background in psychology and my interest in spirituality. And both at Notre Dame and then at Loyola in Chicago, from the very beginning, we were approached by our graduate students. These were people between, say, 25 and 45, many of them gay. And they just wanted to talk about their own sexual life and their desire to be with another and uh, find fruitful love. And I don't know why they picked us. I've asked God many times, and God hasn't answered yet. But uh, they, they did come to Jim and Evelyn. So over the years, they, they taught their teachers uh, that this desire to move out of aloneness and find a committed sexual love is part of all of our journey in life. And it's one of the great graces that we received in our marriage. Then around the year 2000, we turned to interest in transgender. It was becoming an important question about that time. And when we met the first trans colleagues who of course became friends uh, quickly enough, we were met with within ourselves a range of feelings uh, from uneasiness and perplexity to something I'll call bewilderment. And at the time we were writing a book on the negative emotions and how negative emotions like anger and fear often have a gift kind of hidden inside that we have to learn from. And we began to wonder if bewilderment is something like that. We found one scholar who talked about the definition of bewilderment as a salutary emotion because it rescues us from our unwarranted certainty. And in this whole realm of transgender today, there are many, many people who speak with a great deal of unwarranted certainty as though they knew the ways of the most high. And um, so that we began then to try to understand and define bewilderment and maybe how it relates to this question of transgender. And we came to see that the virtue of bewilderment disarms us from long cherished convictions about how we're right about many things. And then we get, began to see the connection between the emotion of bewilderment 
and the, in our scriptures, the experience of wilderness. So, so that the iconic relationship or, or experience of the Israelites escaping Egypt, getting out in the desert, being in the wilderness itself and themselves becoming bewildered, saying to their leaders, so what, we got freedom and now you brought us out here to die? Uh, so, and then it even seems that the story of bewilderment in the desert, in the wilderness is part of the plot. Even to the extent that the writers of the New Testament felt they had to have Jesus spend 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his career, almost as some kind of novitiate or entry passage uh, for what was to come. So we came to see the emotion of wilderness, I'm sorry, of bewilderment as what happens when the wilderness comes indoors when it invades even our own heart. But the question remains, what is its gift once it unfastens us from our certitude? And it may be that it's a path to the extravagance of God. Just a few remarks about that. I've come to see over the years as God's extravagance as a signature of creation. I think many of us grew up with the sense that God is kind of a quid pro quo God, you get what you deserve. That's definitely not the case, which is to our advantage. Or that we reap what we sow. We reap what our ancestors sowed. Uh, and we inherit what we have no right to. And these days with all the research and telescopes giving us information about the cosmos, God's extravagance is on display. One way to say it is surely one galaxy is enough. How many galaxies do you need? But hundreds of them? Or the notion that we have about 400 species of ants. This is really an awful lot of ants, Lord. But it's a, it's a function of God's extravagance. God is by definition someone who doesn't know when to quit. So mm -hmm. keeps living us beyond our desserts. Uh, and so I guess this is the punchline to this brief discussion. God's extravagance explodes our nicely organized binary world. And we had been warned about this in Galatians 3, the seemingly essential binaries of Jew and Greek, slave and Greek, male and female collapse in this new creation. So the spiritual journey, we're convinced, often moves from bewilderment, a disorienting feeling, to God's extravagance, which is also disorienting because it's too much for us to grasp. We used to think that we understood what God was doing. Not so. And so Final words, God's extravagant love for our transgender siblings should not distress us, but should bedazzle us. That extravagance is just another word for grace. Amen. Wow, powerful words, uh, Jim, and uh, <laughs> a, a, an important counter perspective in uh, religious and political debates. 
uh, around who to include uh, in a non-extravagant perspective. Uh, Megan, uh, you've recently written uh, your first book, The, the Road to Me, a, a Transgender Journey. What, what motivated you to write that book and, and why did you choose Jim as a co-author? There we go, unmuted. Um, hi, um, my name's Megan, pronouns she and her. And, you know, The Road to Me, uh, the book I wrote is really um, all because of the nudging and uh, prodding of Jim. <laughs> uh, Jim and Evelyn and I uh, became colleagues and friends, um, boy, over the last, seven, eight years or so. And every time we would talk about, and I would share some of my stories, um, they, would, they would tell me that you need to get these into a book. And I, you know, I never see my, my journey in my life as spectacularly as everyone else seems to see it. You know, when you're living in it and you're just trying to survive this thing called life, um, you you tend to not look at it as anything that's spectacular. But others hearing the stories, you know, and Jim and Evelyn really on the forefront of of pushing me, you know, along on that, made me understand that um, some of my stories might resonate with folks and if one story resonates with one person and gives them the hope to continue forward on their own journeys, then I needed to share those stories. Um, I am not an eloquent uh, writer or speaker like Jim just showed us he was, <laughs> but the words are, are, are honest and true and from my heart. And folks that have read it have commented to me that it's like I'm standing in there just talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that that's a, that's a communication skills that really connects people to the fact that um, I, as an out and proud transgender person, really is a person first, a human being first. And that being transgender is just one sliver of my overall identity. And I think when people can read those words and listen to them, um, Maybe they'll forget that it's a transgender journey and it's just a human journey. Well, uh, Megan, how has faith or religion or spirituality played either a positive or a negative role in your journey? Yeah, um, I was raised in a Catholic household, went to parochial school through grade eight. Um, I wouldn't call our family like extremely um, Catholic, but uh, faith was always a constant as far as, you know, guidance and a guiding tool for, you know, trying to make the best decisions possible. Um, I feel I'm, uh, I'm actually a stronger person for going to parochial school um, because I, I think that you, it, it was strict as most of you probably know. And I think 
and I've learned this also as a teacher that um, you can always loosen up a bit from being strict, but it's hard sometimes to get stricter when you've been loose with people. And so I think, you know, first through eighth grade being a very strict, um, you know, educational system allowed me to then broaden my perspective of what else could be out there and open the door for me even to think of the possibility that I could be anything but in the binary uh, because those rigid rules I found were very um, pliable and I could move them around and make them fit for me. Now, I'm, I'm all about process and structure and organization. I think that comes from that. But I have learned to be able to look at life and all the things that happen in life from um, another perspective. And I think that is a learned thing from being in a very strict you know, parochial education. As far as um, in my everyday life, I, I do not attend services, but I do not hold um, religion against others unless they are trying to use it to harm me and people who identify like me. And then I think that uh, those folks are missing the macro message of love and support and lifting everybody up to the same level. And um, they're, they're failing in their own uh, ideals of, of faith. And I think, um, well, here's the story. So a coworker of 14 years, when I decided, you know, made the announcement I was going to transition, asked me if I had, I was going to forfeit my opportunity, you know, and chances of going to heaven. And I, I answered saying, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you live an honest, open, authentic, truthful life, you have as good a shot as anyone else who may be not living that same with that same level of authenticity and I think you know if there is a heaven um me being honest and truthful first with myself and then with the world I, I, I got a pretty good shot well uh, Megan I mean the the, the past couple of years uh, it, it seems there's been message after message from political leaders and religious leaders uh, denigrating uh, trans people, uh, seeking to exclude them in many ways and, and at times with uh, very violent messages. So uh, how, do, how do you kind of uh, obtain a, a positive spirit? How do you keep your, your energies and your optimism uh, uh, flowing? But it, it's hard sometimes. Um, it hurts. Um, I don't always show the hurt, but it hurts. Uh, but the way I the way I approach it is that um, very few people. Well, they they're starting to get this, my backstory through the book, and there will be a more more storytelling books of seeing the things I've persevered through and made it to this point of my life. There's not really much um, anyone who's going to say to me at this juncture to derail who I am and where I'm going in my life. And then when I am confronted with uh, those people, 
Um, I just asked them, you know, because they claim that transgenderism is going to be the single thing that unravels society and, and civilization. And I go, come on, it didn't even make the top 10. <laughs> so uh, they have no response to why it's not, um, you know, one of the top 10s of the commandments, if it's going to be the one thing that unravels the world. So, um, you know, I don't, I try not to lose any sleep over it. And I don't waste any voices on, on people who have no interest in learning and growing and changing their perspective. Um, I'd rather help families and people who are struggling to figure out how they fit into the world and uh, use my energies and efforts um, to have more positive impact. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Rabbi, uh, Jewish theology and, and practice has often been viewed as more body affirming than those faith traditions who, who understand the body and sexuality uh, to be evil desires. Uh, yet uh, Judaism has very strong patriarchal uh, roots and perhaps most dramatically evidenced in Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, traditions. So uh, how do you interpret uh, your Jewish uh, understandings in, in relationship to um, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity? I, I think it's important to start by saying that, that you know, there's a spectrum uh, of denomination, of understanding, of interpretation, of belief in Judaism. I am a Reformed Jew, which is on the, the progressive egalitarian side. So I, I like to preface with that. But also to say that while Judaism has strong patriarchal roots, there's always been a place for women as well. And if we're talking, you know, about the, the binary that so many people want to reflect upon, um, you know, from our earliest texts onwards, there's a conflict between that idea of the binary and Jewish understanding and interpretation of the text. So from Genesis 127, right, this is, which is my favorite verse of, of text, right? God created the human beings in the divine image, creating them in the image of God, creating them male and female. So the Hebrew itself is actually in the plural. Um, it's, it's them, it's not him, singular. And from that, there's actually a very, you know, ancient, we're talking, you know, thousands of year old interpretation story um, from our Midrash, from our folk tales, let's say that actually the first human, um, Adam the first, uh, Adam was actually created as what they borrow from the Greek, the androgynous, um, right? That God created um, the first being with two faces, one on each side and that um, they are then split down the middle, right? Into this male and this female, into Adam and Adam and Eve. And the fact that this is a, a very ancient commentary story really speaks to what I think a lot of people are starting to learn about Judaism, which is that some of our oldest commentary talks about what is referred to as six different genders, um, but really um, our understanding between gender and sex is different than our, than our ancient, um, you know, 2000 plus years ago, 
interpreters. But the idea that there's not this binary, which I think for a lot of people, particularly coming from a, a Jewish or a Christian or um, uh, even um, from Islam as well, uh, perspective <clears throat> what the quote unquote Bible teaches, you know, this binary construction is, is not what Judaism um, has seen um, for thousands of years, but rather that there's a variety um, of uh, understandings of how humanity um, exists. Um, and while the basis of that is because traditional Judaism keeps males and females separate and requires different things of them, and therefore the ancient rabbis said like we need like if you don't fit into this category or this category of male or female if you're somewhere in the middle what are your responsibilities where where do you fit um and that's where we get the the further um breakdown of which includes um male and female and dragonus borrowed from the greek which we'd use the term intersex today um uh the category of the eunuch um the category of Ilonit, um, a woman uh, with arrested sexual development who cannot bear children. And then um, uh, the term is a tumtum, which is um, a person whose uh, sexual organs um, are recessed and you can't determine you know, where they fall um, by, by uh, physical examination. Please note that we're talking about a text that was written approximately 2000 years ago. Right, so you know the, the language that we might use today um, does does differ. Um, so, yeah, okay. Was there a second? There was there a second question? I was about yeah, to yeah. my notes for the second question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as as you're aware, I mean, uh, in in the the U.S., I mean, particularly uh, within uh, Orthodox communities in New York City, uh, but. Also, currently in Israel, uh, uh, major debates around uh, LGBTQ in inclusion and uh, some specific uh, anti-trans uh, rhetoric. Uh, how do you see Judaism uh, contributing uh, in that uh, debate uh, with a the historic kind of inclusion theology that you referenced. So I always like to tell people that you can use the Bible to defend any perspective that you want to have, um, right? If you'd like to hold up the amount of times that, you know, it says that the Israelites, you know, you were, you were, you were, you were slaves in Egypt and therefore, you know, treat treat others kindly as as your main focus or if you'd rather hold up the one verse you know in Leviticus of a man shall not lie with a man or if you want to hold up Genesis as saying we're all created in God's image right depending on what you're going to claim as like the foundational text you can find interpretation to to support that um, that being said, I think Judaism has a very important role, um, and our leadership has an important role, particularly um, at this moment. Um, so, because I, so my my branch of Judaism, Reform Judaism, has been fighting for LGBTQ rights in some form or another from about the 1960s um, onwards. 
Um, and, you know, there, there is a, a spectrum of interpretation and observance. Um, but I have colleagues, reform and orthodox, actually, in St. Louis, that are going on four plus years of being down at the state capitol, um, fighting against uh, anti-trans legislation um, every week. They, um, they both have children who identify as trans. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they're alongside that, um, another Orthodox colleague who is, you know, from the ultra-Orthodox movement in, in New York, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, um, is actually the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, which is the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue. There are actually quite a number of Jewish synagogues, um, uh, you know, founded as originally as gay or lesbian, but having, you know, um, embraced a full spectrum. Um, and his writings, if people are, I mean, you can find his writings, he's written a couple of books. Um, he does a lot of teaching as well. And he really speaks from a place of a straight ally who sees the humanity um, and speaks to that from, that from our tradition. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's Rabbi Abby Stein, whose memoir, Becoming Eve, traces, you know, her own journey of leaving the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community um, and, her, and her transition. Um, people are interested. It's a very good book. Um, she speaks and, and writes a lot as well. So while um, there's, you know, this, within any group, right, you, you find diversity of opinion, I think, vastly the numbers um, of Jews across denominations um, are, are not just in favor, but embracing um, that we, you know, we have a, I myself identify as, as queer um, and, you know, we've, we've been ordaining clergy um, who are gay and lesbian and trans for a long, and bisexual for a long time at this point. And, you know, the, the root of it all comes from this belief that God doesn't make mistakes, right? That we're each made in God's image and that we are each on our own journey. And it's not for, for anyone to come and say that, you know, you're wrong, that you don't know um, who you, who you are. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for, for, for sharing that. Uh, so let, let's move on then uh, to Maher. Uh, uh, Maher, over the, the past year in Michigan politics, we saw an alignment of conservative Christians with uh, Muslims to oppose uh, further codification of LGBTQ human rights uh, in the state. And this kind of uh, alignment of conservative Christians and, and Muslims has occurred within a global human rights uh, body so that the most prominent uh, opponents to LGBTQ rights have been uh, aligned Christians and, and, and Muslims. And uh, unfortunately, we know that uh, many countries that define themselves as Islamic have some of the most repressive policies and, and practices uh, relative to LGBTQ people. Although uh, Ghana and Uganda are uh, quickly uh, joining uh, those ranks of Islamic countries. 
uh, Maher, your halal this way initiative is somewhat bold amidst prevailing Islamic thought. I, I mean, uh, recently I was uh, driving somewhere here in the state with an imam who told me it is impossible uh, to be gay and also be Muslim. In, in your research, in, in your writings, uh, what, what threads have you found that could uh, promote uh, inclusivity uh, within uh, Islamic thought and practice? Can you hear me? Uh, yes. Perfect. First, well, thank you for having me uh, part of this timely and important conversa conversation. It's an honor for me. Um, let me first give some context on why Islamic countries have like the most repressive uh, regimes, or at least what, why I think that is the case right now. Um, it's true indeed that these country, many countries uh, that define themselves as Islamic have repressive policies relative to the LGBTQ community or queer people. Um, mainstream Islam um, certainly rejects the LGBTQ community um, from the outset, and this is reflective of like the imam, the imam's response to you. You basically cannot be uh, gay and queer. Uh, and Muslim at the same time. Um, the situation is complicated for several reasons. Um, one reason, for example, is the fact that um, when the substance of Islamic law and theology were developing and the rulings about same-sex sexuality and the sexual and gender variations um, um, that were present at the time were being debated um, in the Islamic civilization, the dominant worldview of that, of what was normal uh, in terms of human sexuality at the time in that region was understood in terms of binaries. Uh, people were simply like, you're either male, biologically male or female. And uh, biological ma males are supposed to be attracted sexually to biological females and only to females. And the opposite is true. And uh, both males and females must abide by gender and uh, sexual roles assigned to them um, solely based on their perceived bi biology, basically. Uh, obviously, there's another reason why the situation now is complicated or the way it is. Um, I believe like um, this reason is a political one. Um, in some instances, some of the laws that were put in place to criminalize the LGBTQ community in Islamic countries are not really Islamic in nature, but constitutional. They were coded as law during the British and French colonization of the region which was reflective of the sentiment uh, of the West and every, everywhere else pretty much on this issue. Um, the West, of course, left and progressed, uh, but those laws and sentiments were left behind. Um, the issue um, for queer rights has even become more like weaponized like globally right now. Um, and this is, it's a topic of tension between the East and West for Muslims in particular. Um, this political tension um, uh, is, is an issue like that the Muslims like just take a position on 
to kind of like distance them, themselves from what, everything that is Western. They almost have a romanticized version of what is moral, uh, what is the moral position of, uh, of, Islam, of Islam on this issue, which is one of a rejection. And they hold on to, the, uh, hold on to it. Um, I believe that is not truly reflective of the Islamic scriptures, however. Um, this leads me to the, the question you asked and what kind of like inclusive threads I have found in my research. Um, in general, when we talk about Islam, uh, we can think of it in terms of the legal system or the Sharia law that Muslims abide by. Uh, we can think about Islam also in terms of theology or how the tradition understands the nature of God and creation. And of course, in terms of the scriptures, which inform both law and theology. In reality, when it comes to the scriptures, the Islamic scriptures, basically mainly the Quran, which is God's words, and the Hadith, which is the words of the Prophet Muhammad, a really careful analysis leads to a few conclusions. Um, the Quran itself does not really have a definitive stance to forbid all forms of sexual expression outside of the conventional binaries. Um, to the contrary, um, it has evidence to accommodate certain categories of queer expression. Um, the hadith also, um, or the sayings of the prophet, do not provide sufficient evidence, uh, evidence to forbid like all forms of queer expression as well. To the contrary of that, they, they contain evidence alluding to actually a welcoming space for certain queer categories. Um, that is to say, both of the Quran and the Sunnah or the Hadith, um, Muslims' scriptures, leave us with a reasonable doubt to question the historical stance against queer inclusion, uh, which makes this whole project or the prospect of uh, trying to find a solution to uh, affect the change in a positive way feasible and hopeful. Uh, Maher, uh, why did you title uh your initiative and your book, Halal, uh, this way, perhaps uh, clarifying for uh, our participants uh, the, the definition of halal and haram. Absolutely. Halal is a technical Islamic definition that implies permissibility. When you say something is halal, it means it's permissible and acknowledged, affirmed. Uh, when something is haram, which is the opposite opposite word of that, it means it's not welcome, it's not, it's sinful, it's, it's not acceptable. Um, and queer, queer uh, expression has been considered haram uh, for the past 1500 years of the Islamic history. And um, uh, the, my initiative, Halal This Way, which is uh, which is which which was born about my my from my journey and about my genuine belief system that Islamic scriptures and God's will do not align with the current Islamic position of rejecting the queer community. Um, so, but I believe also like the work that has been done on this issue to try to accommodate the queer community, whether it's been done by scholars in the West or being pushed uh, through uh, political interventions or activist circles, it all like takes on this political role then more so than it does, it does appeal to an actual Islamic theology that would work with the majority of Muslims. And I believe like there is a way to do this work, but it has to be done in a very specific way. And this is why my initiative called Halal This Way. Like I'm trying to say 
there is a way to accommodate and include the queer community within the tradition, but we have to do it in a very specific way. And hopefully, like my work, it is trying to explicate that, trying to explain how it can be done so. Well, uh, uh, Mahara, as you well know, you are operating on the, the margins of uh, uh, Muslim uh, community life. Uh, uh, challenges in, in getting uh, notable uh, Muslim in, endorsers of your initiative. How do you maintain your hope, uh, your uh, energy uh, as, as a, a gay Muslim? Well, first of all, this is like a personal journey like that has started with me since I was a child. Like really, this, is, this was like about a belief in a just God that could not have been the image of God that I was being told about. Um, I felt deep down, no matter how hard I tried to explain that I am not choosing this behavior or this way or feeling um, and so on, there was no space for my tradition to even like acknowledge um, the, the way I was. And I believe like maybe like there is a misunderstanding, maybe they're correct. I tried to abide by their rulings. I tried to do everything that I've been told to do um, to no avail, obviously. And it turns out like the more I worked hard, like the, the more I looked in the tradition, the more I realized that even the scholars in Islam, even the, the, the jurists, even, even our ulama, none of them really have a grasp on this issue because there is no space theologically to think about a category outside of the gender binaries. What we've, what we've known was like male, female, males do this, females do this, and that's, that's about it. Um, the idea that God could create like um, a more, uh, uh, people on the sexual spectrum was not something that they can possibly understand. So I believe like this, this is where the need uh, needs to be focused on to work on it from a theological perspective, to try to understand the nature of the human sexuality, to kind of like substantiate that males and females are not the only cre creation of God. And then, and again, to the rabbi's statement, like these are not a mistake either, because obviously Muslims have seen intersex people, they have dealt with transgender people, but the, the default has always been you're either male or female, so we are going to assign you this gender based on your biology. Never though, I mean like Muslims have accommodated intersex people, but never for intersex people as intersex people. They have accommodated them as intersex people who are either gonna be males or females. So I think like there is a need, a huge need to kind of like push that theological understanding of what human sexuality is. Um, and in addition to the work that has to be done as well in the scriptures and the legal system to kind of like not only understand that God creates more than a male and female, but also uh, deal with it legally. Like how do we deal with a person who's this way, like given the Islamic um, uh, uh, way of life, as well as how can we substantiate that work within the scriptures? How can we make it actually viable from an Islamic perspective? Uh, thank you. Well, wow, what a, a, a rich uh, discussion with uh, a Christian, a Jewish, uh, uh, Muslim uh, perspectives, as well as uh, Megan's uh, personal uh, uh, journey. 
I think, uh, Stephen, we probably have uh, time for about four questions. Uh, if people would like to put a question in the chat, uh, Stephen will uh, kind of manage those and uh, uh, ask about uh, four questions as we have just about uh, eight minutes. Stephen, I can respond to Vicki's question in the chat if that's okay. Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, so Vicki wrote in the chat, for those trying to be supportive in all faiths, what do any of the presenters suggest and we be supportive and helpful? Um, and I'll say I, I dropped a, a link to um, different group uh, who I was watching a webinar they did this uh, this morning um, with a bunch of uh, faith leaders um, of different of different denominations. Um, uh, and and lay leaders as well talking about the most important thing is is to speak up um, that too many people uh, too few people are are speaking on behalf of whole groups right claiming to be like that all Christians believe X or all Jews believe Y or you know all cast you know who, whichever group it is that there's too few people saying that and speaking out um, against. Um, trans and uh, the rest of the LGBTQ community, um, and that the best thing that anyone can do is to speak up and say they don't, that person doesn't, doesn't speak for all of us. That person doesn't speak for me. Um, I might not know everything, but I believe, right, in, in the humanity of all or, or however those words, those words come to you. Any other comments from uh, any of the other panelists? Well, we can also move on to uh, Darlene's question, which is, how does one respond to those who say, if you allow this, then where will it end? Uh, uh, Jim, uh, do you want to try that? Uh, uh, <laughs> given your uh, concept of the extravagance of God, where will it end? Where will it end? That's good. We do not know, but probably not catastrophe <laughs> and probably not apocalyptic. So that's been talked about a great deal. I think it will end in freedom. I would add to that that how many times over the you know, over the past several hundred years have we had the chance to say that as well? You know, when will it end? And lo and behold, we're all still here and it's all still functioning. You know, um, I think they, it's a very narrow vision of the future based on a very narrow vision of the past that some people want to lean on because change is hard. And why do we want to knowingly change things that are, you know, going to make our lives a little more challenging because we have to learn again um so i think that yeah i just think we need to keep exploring because as we explore we expand our our knowledge and we expand our understanding of humanity thank you uh, uh larry or sandy were you endeavoring uh to ask a question i i wanted to say how incredibly impressed i am with this um, 
program and how pleased I am that so many folks have devoted so much time and energy, sometimes a lifetime, to try to help us be more human and embrace our brothers and sisters. And uh, I'm so impressed by the courage that some of you have shown by living an authentic life. Um, and I was thinking about your comment, Rabbi, of um, participate and say, you don't speak for me, you don't speak for all Jews, you don't speak for all Christians, you don't speak for all Muslims. I, I think that's so important because people can be overwhelmed by the loudest voices in the room. And often reasonable people are not the loudest voices in the room. Um, and what I might add to that was a thought um, that sometimes, I, I think there are people that, that are so frightened to let go of their rigid beliefs that we'll never find a path to them. But I think there are other people um, that we can find a way to approach if we aren't so angry about their resistance to change. And, um, and I think sometimes what's helpful is if we take an element of that faith tradition that they might know so that it looks like we could be speaking a common language. So. Mm -hmm. As a Jew, I might talk about Tikkun Olam, you know, to repair the world is to make sure that people aren't hurting, aren't excluded, aren't damned, you know, so if we can try to introduce a common language, we might have a path to those people who are less rigid and may just be clinging to what's familiar. Well, thank you all. I mean, we've, we've heard from multiple faith traditions that there are messages rooted in our uh, faith perspectives that are affirming of uh, trans people and of LGBTQ uh, people. And it is important for those, those voices to be heard uh, gently and at times uh, with a great vocalness. But and where does it end? Uh, it ends, I think, within our faith traditions with a hope of uh, greater inclusion, of greater uh, justice, and of greater transformation of ourselves, but also of the communities and the societies in, in which we live. So this is a wonderful way to begin a celebration of uh, Pride Month. Uh, to remit ourselves uh, to the, the work of justice for trans people, for queer people, for all people. Thank you for joining us uh, this evening and uh, thanks for joining us in the work ahead. Have a good evening. Jesus, and thank you. Thanks.